are going to talk about the Lord's Supper one more time. I don't know that I've ever heard a three-part series on the Lord's Supper, and I don't know that I'll ever do it again necessarily, but uh, there's just something else that needs to, to be said here. We've, we've talked about two elements of the Lord's Supper in this passage in 1 Corinthians 11. We're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. We're in the second half of chapter 11, and we're right in the midst of Paul addressing three issues uh, that he has with the church in Corinth. There are three things taking place, specifically three things that are taking place in their church gathering, their worship service, that he feels like they needs to be a- addressed. So in verses 2 to 16, he addresses the issue of uh, the men and the women uh, embracing their gender identity. So we talked about that maybe four weeks ago, three or four weeks ago. The second issue he wants to deal with is the Lord's Supper. There are some things happening with the Corinthians' celebration of the Lord's Supper that are harmful to this church body. Things that are not going well, things that are resulting in some severe judgment on the church. And so we've talked about two elements of the Lord's Supper based on this passage. The first thing that we talked about was that the Lord's Supper is supposed to be an event in which the church body is unified. And by focusing on what Christ has done for us, rather than focusing upon our status or our accomplishments, which is what the Corinthians are doing, the Lord uses that to unify this church body as one people who have a common need for Jesus and then come to this table to share together in Christ. It's supposed to be a meal that unifies the people of God. That's the first thing we talked about. The second thing we talked about was that in this meal, there's a sense in which the people of God are feasting on Jesus Christ himself somehow. Now, there's a sense in which Christians are always feasting on Jesus. This is part of what we believe. You come to Christ by faith and you partake of Christ by faith. There is some sense in which Jesus is consistently, constantly nourishing the soul of the person who believes in Jesus. But at this table... There is a unique experience in which we are given the symbol of a reality. The reality is that Jesus' body was broken for us and His blood was spilled for us and that that Jesus, who is not here on the earth any longer but who has now ascended into heaven, that Jesus somehow is present. This symbolizes the presence of the real Lamb of God. And that somehow we partake of that Jesus by the Holy Spirit. There's some connection that the Holy Spirit gives us to the real Jesus who is in heaven so that we are able to encounter Him, have communion with Him. Okay, that's where the communion table gets its name, is this notion of there's some sort of partaking of Jesus when we eat this meal by faith, that's what the Holy Spirit enables to happen. If you would like to listen to either of those sermons, they're both on the website, and, and I go into far more detail on both of those aspects of the Lord's Supper. This morning we're going to talk about a third aspect of the Lord's Supper, namely that the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the new covenant. 
the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of a new of the new covenant, and I will talk about all three of those words a little bit later. Sign, seal, covenant. This meal is supposed to give us great confidence, great assurance of God's promises to you. But often the event of the Lord's Supper, which is supposed to unify us in this feast and which is supposed to enable us to somehow uniquely commune with Jesus, often this event separates us into a sort of awkward, privatized eating that is marked more, I would say, by introspection and more by questions of whether or not we are worthy to take the meal than it is by a sense of assurance that Jesus is for us this morning, this afternoon. So that's what we want to look at today. The reason why we get introspective, I think it happens especially with evangelicals, I think that the reason that it happens is because of the way that we understand this passage here in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 27 and following, and the way that we understand the very serious warnings here. Warnings about how to take the Lord's Supper. So here's the structure of today's uh, message. The first thing we're going to do is look at verses 27 to 34, and we're going to make sure that we understand what it means to eat the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, or in an unworthy manner, which is the angle that Paul approaches it from. What are these judgments that Paul is talking about? The second thing, then, what we're going to do is explain why the Supper should leave Christ's people assured and strengthened rather than introspective and questioning by taking the Lord's Supper as a sign and seal of the new covenant. So let's do part one here, and I'm just going to walk through these verses. I'm going to start by just reading verses 27 to 32 to start with. We just read it, but let's get it fresh in our minds. If you have a Bible, please please join me. Set your eyes on the words. It helps It helps you to take it in. Starting in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats... Eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are, are, are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Okay, what's going on here? Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. We're just going to zero in on that for a second. Because this is the problem. There's an eating and a drinking that's taking place in an unworthy manner. Whoever does that will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. When you eat in this unworthy manner, rather than receiving grace from Christ's death, you're going to be held guilty for His death. Rather than receiving, or rather than being on the receiving end of the benefits of the crucifixion, you are essentially contributing to the crucifixion. By the way that you are eating, you're doing things that render you guilty for producing the crucifixion. That is to say, you're sinning. 
You're taking the Lord's Supper in a sinful manner. Unworthy manner is a big deal. So what does it mean? Was it, I don't want to do that. I don't want you to do that. What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper in this unworthy manner? Well, let's keep reading because Paul begins to answer the question by proposing this remedy in verse 28. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. There needs to be an examination before the eating and the drinking. So there is a valid call to some form of introspection, some form of examination. It's not like the introspective culture that we have around the Lord's Supper just came out of nowhere. It comes from verse 28 of of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. Now here, let's read verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on on themselves. So Paul clarifies that at the heart of this unworthy eating which requires an examination, at the heart of the unworthy eating is a failure to discern the body. That's what it says in verse 29, right? Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. That's the decisive failure. So what does this mean? The failure to discern the body is what has led God to judging this church body in Corinth. So I have two questions. One, I want to know what it means to discern the body. Because if we know what it means to discern the body, or to fail to discern the body, then we will know what it means to eat in an unworthy manner, and then we can avoid this problem. The second thing I want to know is what kind of judgment did it bring when they failed to do it? So I'm going to answer that second question first. What kind of judgment does this failure incur And we're going to read verse 30. Listen to this. Because of the failure to discern the body in verse 29, verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Failure to discern the body has resulted in illnesses and even deaths in the church in Corinth. This is serious stuff. I've never seen this happen. But this is serious. And then verses 31 and 32 make a couple of important comments about these judgments that have come on the, on the church body. The first one, in verse 31, Paul says that they could have been avoided. Verse 31, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we had properly discerned the body, then we would not be going through this problem where we've got people who are sick and actually dying in our church body. Some kinds of suffering are the result of disobedience. I'll come back to this in a minute, but some kinds of suffering are the results of things that we have done. Now, a lot of suffering is not because of things that we have done personally per se. Like, uh... Well, we could go into the whole tsunami uh, sermon that we did a while back. But some of of our suffering directly corresponds to decisions that we have made. That's why Paul says that these ones apparently could have been avoided. 
And then in verse 32, Paul says that the judgments were forms of fatherly discipline, not signs of eternal damnation. In fact, he says that they were for the purpose of preventing damnation. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The purpose of this judgment was actually fatherly discipline in order to avoid condemnation. Now realize that this is entirely consistent with the principle of God's love, God's love in the New Testament. God is willing to lovingly discipline His children when we are in sin so that our hearts do not continue to harden in the kind of rebellion that results in condemnation at the final judgment. God disciplines us because He loves us. That is important logic. He disciplines us because He loves us. He will not allow His children to stubbornly stand in the middle of the road when He sees a truck coming around the corner. Why? Because He loves us. He's not beating us. He's not thrashing us. He's not taking it out on us like the judge did to his daughter in Texas, which you probably saw on the news this last week. He's not doing that. But you better believe that our God will lovingly spank us. If you are the Lord's, then you should know that He is doing this discipline because He's committed to you. He's committed to preserving your soul. He will not let the true believer grow hardened in their sin so that we eventually get to that point where we turn away from Christ. He won't let it happen if you're His. If you think you may know somebody who seems to have turned away from Christ, their falling away, their so-called falling away, is not really a falling away. It's an indication that they never knew Him in the first place. Because God does not allow His children to fall away. Instead, when they are in sin and growing hardened in heart, He disciplines them so that they are not condemned in the end. And Christina, if you would, just put up that first slide. I'm going to read to you here. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're not disciplined by God... When you are in hard-hearted, rebellious sin, it is a demonstration that you are not sons, not children of God. Besides this, he goes on, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. 
But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. This kind of discipline, it changes us. It forms us. It changes our character. It brings about holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Okay, this is not a reference to timeouts. This is a reference to daddy giving you a spanking on the bottom. In the New Testament world, this is exactly what he's taught. He's referring to the pain of corporal discipline. And nobody likes it. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Thank you. And for some in Corinth, the rot that was taking place in their hearts was so dark surrounding their celebration of the Lord's Supper that God saw it fit to spank them, as it were, to discipline them. And in this case, to bring illness and even some situations that resulted in death so that their hardening souls could be healed through these forms of very precise, very measured, very controlled suffering in order to humble them and turn them from their sins and restore their relationship with Jesus and keep them from condemnation at the final judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. It's a rare method of ministry, but I've seen it done. One brother says to another brother, look, I believe you're the Lord's. I've seen you walk with God. I've seen your relationship with God. You you seem to be Christ's. And I just want you to know that if you keep going down this path that you're going right now, He will discipline you. He loves you and He will discipline you. It's a rare form, rare method of ministry in which a brother or sister will speak to another brother or sister in that way. But sometimes it's needed. Now, what I don't want us to do here is take this message, take this truth, and then assume that your suffering is the result of some sin and that God is disciplining you for it. Sometimes that's the case, but really reserve that kind of claim for situations in which you can spot a very clear cause and effect. Like, let's say you love the Lord and battle hard, or maybe don't battle so hard, with hard drinking for 25, 30 years. And you find out at some point that your liver's got some major problems. Direct cause and effect in that kind of situation, you're not, most likely, you're going to be able to be comfortable with saying something like, you know, I brought this on myself. I'm being disciplined for, for foolish mistakes that I made. How many of us in this room can, can say, okay, there are, there are things in my marriage, tensions, suffering that has come into my marriage 
because of foolish mistakes that I have made in my anger, in my selfishness. And you know what? To be perfectly honest, Lord, I brought this on myself. I'm being disciplined for for foolish mistakes that I made. There there comes a time in a person's life where this goes beyond the theory of God disciplines those whom he loves. And sometimes you just know, look, I am I am being disciplined. Now, just don't pull that card out when you don't see clear enough to make cause and effect relationships. Don't be like, I lost my child. We had a stillborn child, and, and it's probably because I had sex with my boyfriend when I was 16. Just, that, that is, that, that, there's too much mis- that This is not meant to speak to that kind of situation. Okay? So clear cause and effect. And the Lord changes your heart. When you're willing to... There was a time in my life where I was rebelling against the Lord. I knew that I was. I was living in the ways of the world. I was living a bad lifestyle. I ended up getting my heart broken. I ended up being distanced from all my Christian friends. I ended up losing my in-state tuition because I had left school and I had left this ministry and I was playing in this band and then the band broke up and then I had nothing and I was working at this coffee shop and there was like... I'm being disciplined. I, the Lord humbled my heart. He changed me. And I said, Lord, this is just, I'm being disciplined because you love me. So it happens. And it's because he loves you. And in Corinth, now I don't know why Paul can speak so confidently to this. I don't know the details of that situation well enough. We, we, we can't. We can't see all that was happening there. But in Corinth, Paul knows that the sin that leads to the kind of discipline that he's talking about had to do with eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, which he further defines as eating it without discerning the body. So, our first question. What does it mean to eat without discerning the body? And our context really provides the answer. Because remember, the issue that Paul is addressing in verses 17 to 22, where he introduces the problem, is that the Corinthians are focusing on personal status when they take the Lord's Supper. And that self-focus, that self-exaltation, it shows up in two manifestations in their church. The first is that when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, their emphasis on social status, it's really the rich who are, who've got a problem in this particular situation, their emphasis on social status has caused them to fail to remember the achievement of Jesus in His sacrifice for sinners at Calvary. They're more focused on self-attained wealth or status than they are on remembering what Jesus says. And that's why Paul says in verse 24 and 25 that both in eating and in drinking, you are to do these things to remember what Christ has done. So their their focus is off of what Christ has done and on themselves. They're failing to discern the true nature of the value of the body of Jesus sacrificed for them. 
They're failing to discern the body of Jesus sacrificed for them. The second manifestation of their self-exaltation is that because of that sense of self-righteousness, the rich are exalting themselves over and above others in the church when they eat the Lord's Supper. So not only are they failing to discern the true nature of Christ's sacrifice, Christ's body, they're failing to discern the nature of the church body. These two things go hand in hand when you start having some great sense of self, self-accomplishment, self-exaltation, it immediately ruins your ability to discern the proper relationship that you have both to God and to other people. Because you think so highly of yourself. Makes you view God wrong, makes you view people wrong. They're blinded And they're failing to judge themselves properly, is what Paul says in verse 31. That failure to judge themselves properly, to understand that, hey, I am a sinner in need of grace, just like all of you are. We're on equal ground. That blindness causes them to devalue the body of Christ and to devalue the body of Christ crucified, and to devalue the body of Christ that is the people of God. The Corinthians are eating the Lord's Supper with a failure to grasp the Gospel. What it comes down to. They, They fail to grasp the Gospel. They fail to understand our common need for God's saving grace. And when you eat the Lord's Supper while failing to understand and embrace our common need for the grace of God, you fail to discern the body of Christ, both His sacrifice and His people. And you eat in an unworthy manner. It is very, very dangerous to eat the Lord's Supper if you do not understand and embrace our common need for God's grace. This is what it comes down to. You eat in an unworthy manner. You fail to discern the body when you eat in such a way where you fail to understand our common need for God's grace. Which means that there are really two things you need to ask yourself before you eat the Lord's Supper. I'll just boil it down to two things. Two things you need to ask yourself before you eat the Lord's Supper. Am I admitting my sinfulness, turning from it, and willing to receive Christ's forgiveness? Your God-oriented response, your vertical response, am I willing to admit my sinfulness, turn away from it, and embrace Christ and His forgiveness for me? Ask yourself that question. And number two, ask yourself, am I willing to love these brothers and sisters with the same grace with which God loves me? That's your horizontal question. Am I willing to love this church body with the same kind of loving graciousness with which Jesus loves me? If not, it shows you don't get the gospel. If you're not willing to turn from sin and grab hold of Jesus, you don't get the gospel. If you're not willing to love these people with the same graciousness with which Christ has loved you, it shows you don't get the gospel. Don't eat the Lord's Supper if you don't get the gospel. Don't eat the Lord's Supper if you're not willing to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. You have some known sin 
something that's just crystal clear to you, you know it, you've been unwilling to turn from I'm not talking about perfectionism here. I'm just talking about is there something in your life that you are unwilling to say, I'm going to let go of that and put my trust in Jesus? Okay? If, if that's the case, don't eat. Is there some relationship in your life which you are just unwilling to reconcile with some member of Christ's body? Just un, I just I refuse to reconcile. I'm not talking about everybody have a perfect relationship this morning. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, is there anybody that you just are in your heart? You're like, I will not give them the kind of grace that Jesus has given to me. Then don't eat. You don't get the gospel. So, there's a warning. And understandably, it drives us to a little bit of introspection. Are you turning from sin and trusting in Jesus? Are you willing to love your brothers and sisters? But really, it's almost like saying, are you a Christian? Isn't it? Are you a Christian? These questions might require some thought from time to time, maybe some hard thought once in a long while. But what I want to suggest to you today is that this is not the main thing that we're supposed to be focusing on when we take the Lord's Supper. Unless you, one, just do not believe in Jesus, two, are not willing to battle some clearly defined sin, just not willing to even battle it, three, are in the midst of a conflict that you are completely unwilling to work through with another believer, or four, currently under church discipline, then for most of us, most of the time, the answer to these two questions is just going to be yes. You know, Lord, I'm not perfect. But I don't want sin to rule my life. Will you help me to keep walking after you in your ways? Will you help me to keep loving these people? Thank you so much for saving me. Are you a Christian? This is, this is just basic Christianity. And we shouldn't normally be in turmoil as we prepare to eat the supper. The problem in Corinth is that they're just totally wacko in their perspective of Christ and other people. They don't, they're not viewing anything through the lens of the gospel. And they're being judged for it. But the supper isn't supposed to create turmoil for us. It's supposed to create assurance for us. Because in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is confirming the new covenant promises to you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What do you think that means? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. At the Last Supper, Jesus takes a cup. He identifies the cup as containing wine that symbolizes the blood of the new covenant. What does that mean? It's got this wine in it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wine symbolizes blood. The blood is somehow related to a new covenant. Why am I supposed to drink this? 
In the Bible, a covenant, which is some sort of serious relational agreement between two parties. It's kind of like a major contract. A covenant is ratified, that is, it's, it's made officially valid or sealed by the shedding of blood. It's how you, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a big time handshake. In, in the South, we don't really do things that way anymore. When we want to make a deal official, we might, we might shake hands, but usually we'll sign an agreement with one another. Right? I've got a, a lease on this place that we're, that we're renting, that we live in, and we signed a contract. And, and that's our way of, uh, of saying we bind ourselves to this, and it's what makes the contract valid. Well, in the ancient Near Eastern world, the Israelites, the Hittites, the Assyrians, one of the ways in which a covenant was sealed was with the killing of an animal. And by doing this, you're essentially stating, let this be done to me if I fail to uphold the obligations that I've just committed to. Let what happened to this animal happen to me. You are guaranteeing your oath. You're signing in blood. might think of it that way. You may remember, for example, in Genesis chapter 15, God promises Abraham that he's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. This is a commitment from God. There's a promise being made. There's an oath that's being made. And then God has Abraham cut in half a heifer and then a goat and then a ram and a turtle dove and then a pigeon and then God walks through the middle of them. And what he's doing is saying, let it be done to me if I fail, Abraham, to do what I just promised you to do. It's the ratification of a covenant, of a deal. It makes it official. Signed in blood. And once a covenant has been ratified, then something else happens in the Bible. You know what? I just skipped a page. So, that's coming. <laughs> okay. Before I say that, though, uh, this ceremony where God passes through the split animals, you see something similar happen at Mount Sinai with the Mosaic Covenant. So, if you'll put up the next slide for me, Christina. Notice in this one, however, who's taking the oath? Who's making the promises? Listen to this. Then he read, Moses read the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Okay, so this thing was just signed. This thing was just sealed. In blood. The covenant is official. The blood of the covenant is what ratifies the covenant. And with that act, the people are making a pledge to God. 
the Pledge of Obedience. And God gives some promises on his end. If they're obedient, then God has some promises as well. This was bad news. This covenant was bad news for the people of Israel. You can Thank you, Christina. Okay, now, once a covenant is ratified, something else happens in the Bible. God gives his people a tangible sign or a symbol that testifies to the covenant between God and his people. It gives them some sort of sign. It's like a wedding ring, right? The wedding ring testifies to the covenant. The wedding ring is a, is a physical symbol of a pledge that has been made. It's the symbol of a relationship that says a promise was made. I talked to my girls about this. I said, you know what this ring means, girls? This ring means only mommy. That's what it means. Only mommy. I made a promise. And she made a promise. And this is a sign of the covenant between us. It's a symbol. It's a tangible demonstration of the oath. Now, does anybody know what the sign of the covenant is between God and Israel? Really, two of them, at least. The main one, the main sign of the Mosaic Covenant was circumcision. This was the physical symbol that testified to the fact that there was a deal between God and His people. And when the men of Israel took that sign upon themselves, they were, on behalf of themselves and on behalf of their families, they were identifying themselves as participants in the covenant. So the sign of circumcision is like the physical demonstration that there's a relationship in place between us and Yahweh. Now, in the New Covenant, some similar things have happened. There's been some blood that has been shed in order to ratify a new deal between God and, its, and His people. This, this deal has been made official, and there are signs also for those who participate in the New Covenant. There are signs of the New Covenant. And in light of this covenant, God has given us Two signs that symbolize the fact that this covenant has been ratified between God and His people. Jesus shed His blood in order to ratify it, and now we have two signs that we are to embrace. Two ways in which Jesus marks us as His people and and in which we demonstrate that we claim Him as our God. Two ways in which we are identified as participants and recipients of the promises of the new covenant. Anyone want to guess what the two signs of the new covenant are? You, I'll let you, you can talk right now. Any, any guesses? Baptism? Lord's Supper. These are the signs of the new covenant. Baptism is the sign that marks, demonstrates your entry into the new covenant. That's why when you become a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be baptized. You need to take upon yourself the sign of the covenant. If you haven't been baptized as a believer, you need to be. I'll use the word, you must be baptized 
if you believe in Jesus Christ. It is a sign of your covenant relationship with Him. Jesus wants to mark you out as a person who has entered into the covenant promises. And He wants you to identify yourself as a partaker of the new covenant. This is the same reason why we don't baptize children. I've mentioned stuff similar to this before. If you don't believe in Jesus, then you are not a recipient of the new covenant promises. So why would we place the sign of covenant membership upon our children when they don't believe and therefore are not members of the covenant? That's why we don't baptize them. They're they're not in the covenant until they believe. And once they believe, then take the sign upon yourself. Identify yourself with Jesus. The second sign is this table, the Lord's Supper. And rather than marking out your entry into the covenant, the Lord's Supper is what marks out your ongoing participation in the covenant. The ongoing participation. It's the sign of a covenant relationship that is currently in place. So perhaps some of you singles have been in this situation. You're hanging out and uh, you meet Mr. Wonderful and uh, you start spending some time and you, you realize, you know, maybe you're just, maybe it's on the subway or, you know, you're not spending too much time, but you just, you just realize, hey, I'm kind of connecting with this person. And then at your mind, in your eyes, you start to look for something on the hand of the person that you're talking to. Because you want to make sure that there is no sign of a covenant that is currently taking place. A covenant that is already in place with someone else. This meal is an indicate. You better be looking for that sign, right? Okay, and if you see it, you're like, okay, I got it. So it's not going to happen. Okay, that's what we need to do. This meal here is an indicator of a covenant relationship between God and his people. It marks us as ongoing partakers of the covenant promises. Now, parenthetical thought here. That's why being excommunicated from the church is a huge deal. It bars you from this table. It bars you from this table. When somebody has been excommunicated from a church... Like the, we talked about this, we went through First Corinthians chapter five. Matthew eighteen outlines the process. When somebody is unrepentant, unwilling to turn from sin, they've been brought, they've been approached in several different ways. When that happens, the church then must remove that person from the church body, and the church is stating that this person's unwillingness to repent of clear, biblically defined sin seems to indicate that they may not actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what church discipline is. And so they're not allowed to take part in the sign that indicates the ongoing relationship. You're barred from the table. Okay, close that parenthesis. The meal is an indicator of an ongoing covenantal relationship. Another parenthesis. If you're taking the Lord's Supper, and indicating the ongoing relationship, and you haven't taken on the sign of entry, you need to do that. I'm going back to baptism again. If you're taking the Lord's Supper, you haven't been baptized, your kids are taking the Lord's Supper, they haven't been baptized, they need to be baptized. You need to be baptized. Okay, I'm done with that. Not only is this meal, though, 
an indicator of the ongoing relationship. More specifically, it's an indicator that draws our attention to the blood that ratified the covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now why? Why do you think the meal draws our attention to the blood of the covenant specifically? To the ratification of the covenant? It's because God wants to give you assurance of the promises. This cup is a symbol of of the blood that finalized God's promise to you. It finalized the agreement. The cup points to the sealant of the promises. This cup is God's way of saying to us today, my covenant with you has been ratified by the blood of my Son. And I want you to have something that confirms to you in a tangible way the security of my commitment. And I want you to embrace it and identify yourself as part of this deal. I want you to eat this. I want you to know that this is sure. This is the Lord's way of giving the church her wedding ring. This is a symbol of the covenant that has been sealed. The meal says, all my promises have been secured for you. Lord's Supper is not only a time for us to unite, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. It's not only a time for us to feast on Jesus Himself, which we talked about last week. But it's also a time in which God wants to encourage your faith by making His visible pledge to you. Just like a ring would. Not only has God given us the message of the gospel as a testimony in word, but he has given this meal as a visible pledge, a concrete affirmation of the certainty of the promises that have been proclaimed to you. In the gospel, you have been told that Christ gave his body for you. You've been told that he poured out his blood for you. You've been told that he died on the cross of Calvary for you so that you might have eternal life. And today, he provides a sign for you in order to mark his promises with something concrete, something you can touch, something you can feel, something you can see, something you can taste. And that's the reason why we don't want to give undue energy to introspection. We have to give some energy to it, but not undue energy to introspection. God doesn't want the Christian who is just genuinely battling his way to the celestial city to be bogged down in despair over whether or not he's worthy to take the supper. God wants to give you strength for the journey through the supper. And if we know that in the truest sense, we really are unworthy of eternal life, And we're trusting in the one who alone is truly worthy and righteous. Then the righteousness of Christ covers our sin like a cloak we put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we can eat this meal because we're clothed by God's great grace. This meal is designed to remind you that you can take God's promises to the bank. He signed it. It's sealed. Eat this. Remember. It's over. There's nothing more certain than this. The blood of Jesus has most certainly made a way for sinners to have peace with God and draw near to Him as our Father. So if you are turning from sin 
and trusting in Jesus. You believe in him. You want to follow him. You want to love your brothers and sisters. You're not under church discipline. Would you please eat this meal with us and be encouraged in your journey to our heavenly home? Lord, we thank you for this sign of the new covenant. We thank you of what, for what you intend to communicate to us right here. That these promises were secured by the blood of my son. There is no question about whether or not this covenant is going to stand. It has been sealed. And this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Take this. Drink it. In remembrance of me. Remember. Remember what I secured for you. As you drink this, remember. Nothing breaks the promises of God. New, New Hope, I, I want us to remember that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. Maybe something kind of like that. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then who can be against us? If Christ is for us, if Christ has sealed the covenant, if Christ has given his life, if Christ has performed all righteousness, if Christ has re removed the condemnation verdict from us before the throne of God, if God is for us, who could stand against us? May your hearts be steadfast in the knowledge, not that you have done some great thing, or that you're some great person, or that you're some moral hero, may your heart stand secure with the knowledge that your Savior has accomplished the certainty of God's promises to you. We ought to be a people who are radically centered on what God has done for us. And that's what strengthens us to be a people who now live on mission so that others might know him. So may the God who made light shine out of darkness continue to shine into your hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that he is precious to you and that you might have an eager desire to make him known. And all of God's people said, Amen.